Welcome to Blue Dot, a look at our place in space. I'm Dave Schloem. One of the most amazing sights you can see on western U.S. rivers and their tributaries are migrating salmon, returning to spawn. Unfortunately, in recent years, the numbers of king or chinook salmon have been in decline with the winter-run chinook listed as an endangered species. The reasons for the virtual collapse of the salmon fishery are myriad and at times complex, but it basically comes down to human interference in the natural fisheries ecosystems. In the middle part of the 20th century, the West's great rivers and most of the vital salmon-run rivers such as the Columbia and Sacramento were dammed. That cut off the salmon from their spawning grounds and led to efforts to mitigate the problem by the building of fish hatcheries by federal and state agencies, such as the Coleman National Fish Hatchery Complex near Redding, California. It was built to try and save the salmon population after the construction of Shasta Dam. In this program, we'll take a look at the problems and some possible solutions to the salmon decline with three experts. Later on in the show, we'll hear from Northern California fishing guide Jason Thatcher, a lifelong angler whose livelihood, along with his fellow fishing guides, depends on healthy fisheries. And also later on, we'll hear from the manager of the Coleman Fish Hatchery, Brett Gallion, whose responsibility it is to oversee managing the hatchery's role in keeping fish in the river system. But our first guest is Robin Elke. Robin is a salmon expert for the Pacific Fishery Management Council. It's composed of 14 members from Washington, Oregon, Idaho, and California that represent tribal, federal, and state governments, and also private citizens with expertise in fisheries and conservation. The council recommends management measures for the Pacific Coast's federal waters, which in turn go to the U.S. Secretary of Commerce through the National Marine Fisheries Service. Robin joined us recently from Portland, where the Fishery Management Council is based. Robin Elke, welcome to Blue Dot. Thanks, Dave. I appreciate that. Well, let's start with the, the Pacific Fishery Management Council. Could you give, give us a primer on what it is and what its, what its goals are? Sure, Dave. The council is one of eight different councils that are within the whole United States that were created by Congress, actually, back in 1976. And these uh, fishery management councils help make sure that the resources in the ocean uh, stay local, if you will. And then they also um, help set up some fisheries so that uh, we provide access to um, harvestable resources while making sure that we have good conservation standards in place. Could you give us a sense of like how, how it's constructed? Who, what kinds of people are on the council? Well, like, you know, start with yourself, for example. <laughs> yeah, so the council um, has a council staff with a executive director and a deputy director, and then a handful of staff officers. And these staff officers, which I am the salmon staff officer, um, focus on particular uh, what we call management plans and uh, for particular stocks of fish. So I will do salmon, we'll have another uh, staff officer who will cover ground fish, another for the coastal pelagic species uh, like anchovy and her uh, herring. And um, so we have 
those staff officers um, that support that FMP or that fishery management plan. And then we have a handful of IT and admin folks to help make sure that um, all of our logistics are in order. Let's, we're going to focus on the salmon fishery. Uh, and of course, there are many species and subspecies, I, I suppose you could, you could call them. But could you start with, you know, from north to south, what are, what are the different fisheries and the, and the species of salmon that we have in, in, on the West Coast? Sure. So on the West Coast, which would cover Washington, Oregon, and California, uh, for the most part, the salmon fisheries focus just on Chinook and Coho. Um, we have uh, Puget Sound, starting from the north up in Washington. Uh, we have some uh, stocks coming out of the Puget Sound, but a lot of the stocks come out of the coastal rivers of Washington or out of the Columbia River, um, which is right at the border of Oregon and Washington. There are a few stocks just moving south um, that come out of Oregon. Uh, for Chinook and Coho, but the next big players, if you will, when it comes to salmon stocks, um, come out of the Klamath River and the Sacramento River. And so uh, those are the, the majority of the, of the stocks that, you know, we focus on when we construct our salmon fisheries every year. Well, let's talk specifically about the Chinook uh, salmon fishery, because there, there are many different types of Chinook salmon runs. Uh, last I looked, there's like eight genetically distinct populations. Could you give us an idea of how, how complex the, the Chinook salmon are? Because they're, they're not all just the same fish. Yep, yep, you're right. They're not all the same fish. Some are doing better than others. Some populations are very big. Some populations are very uh, small. Some have a uh, hatchery uh, component to them and others are uh, purely you know, natural origin fish. And as those fish are out in the ocean and you know, migrating uh, to and from their natural streams, they you know, have a timing that may compare and be equal to uh, other stocks that are perhaps bigger um, and that, but return at the same time. So I guess I'm explaining it that way so that um, you could understand that even though there are very small components of Chinook, a lot of times their timing and their migration have them mix with other bigger components of a particular stock that's in a particular area. One of the things that fascinates me about about salmon is, of course, they're an anadromous fish, which means mm -hmm. they spend much of their lives in the ocean and then come into the freshwater to to spawn and reproduce. And then, of course, the salmon, when they come up to spawn, that's the end of their life cycle. Mm -hmm. But uh, it, it seems to me that salmon, because of that, are such a, a kind of canary in the coal mine for the health of our of our planet and our environment because they are they represent what's going on in the ocean and and what's going on in the freshwater. That's true. Their their lives depend on both, that's for sure. They're I've always just thought of salmon as being heroes, actually, just in the sense that what they have to do and what they have gone through um, to migrate, you know, from their stream to the ocean and then back again, you know, 
for all of these years, despite you know what uh, civilization has put on them, they've they've managed to do it, and they are so resilient and so fantastic. Um, so you know, personally, you got to love them for that. But um, you know, they have a really short uh, lifespan, which is also a different component than other stocks of fish you know that are in the ocean and so they can have the opportunity to you know do well um, even after poor years of uh, survival or because they can they can spend more time out in the ocean in, in some of those years it's in, they spend uh, up to you know a couple three four years out in the ocean don't they yeah for the chinook they will i mean the chinook generally have a six-year lifespan and so they could spend you know two three four years uh in the ocean and of course you know like you mentioned you know the how the ocean environment is you know helps their survival or contributes to their survival of, and um you know where the food sources are how warm the ocean is there's a lot of factors that can affect them that way certainly and you know, the same is true as their juveniles migrating out of the freshwater, you know, that survival rate is going to be, you know, dependent on how fast they can get out of the freshwater environment into the ocean. Again, what the uh, water temperatures are for those fish, what the habitat's like. So there's definitely a lot of components that play into how well these salmon survive both coming and going, if you will. Yeah, bottom line, they, they like colder water. Cold and fast, I think, yeah. would probably suit them well. Yeah. Well, it, and if there was one word I would use to explain uh, what's going on with salmon, it's, it's complicated. It's, it's a complex problem. Could you delineate some of the, some of the problems confronting the salmon fishery? Well, for the salmon fisheries, um, you know, the things that we're confronted with every year are, you know, how is that salmon population doing? How many do we need to um, have returned to the spawning grounds to ensure that we have a stable population, you know, for future generations? And then how can you develop a viable uh, fishery around that in the sense of one that's uh, economically viable, if you will, and, you know, provides opportunity for both the sport fishermen and the commercial fishermen. And it's, it's always a balance. And with some of the populations and some of the ocean conditions now, um, you know, some of the abundances are declining, and there's more uh, uncertainty in how well the fish are going to survive, you know, those ocean environments. And so having the models reflect some of that information so that you're setting your fisheries correctly and making sure that we get fish back to the spawning grounds um, is always a challenge. Well, you mentioned two different groups, the, the commercial fishermen and the recreational sport mm -hmm. fishermen of, and like fishing guides who depend on the salmon fishery to take people out and, you know, yeah. have that incredible experience of catching a Chinook salmon, uh, which is quite thrilling. Could you give us a sense of, you know, there are a lot of stakeholders involved in this that you deal with uh, there at the Pacific Fishery Management Council. Could you give us a sense of that? 
Sure, sure. So um, the council creates advisory groups that um, are the stakeholders, that are the people using the resource, you know, making their living on these fish, enjoying their fish, um, you know, however it is they may do that. And so we're kind of a bottoms up or a grassroots um, system with the council in that we have an advisory group uh, for each of our uh, species or groups of fish that we manage. But for salmon, we have the salmon advisory sub panel and that's, made up of sport fishermen, commercial fishermen, charter fishermen, processors, um, you know, all the people on the ground that live every day in those fisheries are represented, Oregon, Washington, and California in this one group. And these groups bring to the table the advice, the logistics, the things that their communities need and want for a successful fishery, however it is that they themselves describe what success is. Because you could understand that a commercial fisherman might have a different concept of what a successful fishery is to him as opposed to a sport fisherman. Um, their idea of success may be different. But all of these ideas are, are brought uh, to the council the salmon advisory sub panel works together to develop a fishery that will give them what they need and remain within the conservation objectives of uh, the particular stocks that are uh, limiting the fishery and um, fits, you know, all the boxes get checked. So we work really hard to do that with our uh, stakeholders. It's a week-long process to uh, get everything to fit, but without that participation from those stakeholders, you know, the, the process just uh, uh, wouldn't work. And could you also comment on the, the indigenous uh, population, the, the tribal component to this? Because for them, the salmon fishery is, mm -hmm. it's, it's not a recreational thing. It's a deeply spiritual connection that, you know, goes back thousands of years for them. And so yes. they, they have a really deep interest in what goes on with the salmon fisheries. They do. And they're um, also, you know, they have federal rights to those fish. And that is um, certainly honored in this process. And, and the tribes themselves work, you know, within their own group to inform the council again of, you know, what they are going to be planning for their fisheries, given the amount of fish that they have to um, work with for any particular year. Um, and so, it, it is a separate process, separate from the non-tribal commercial fisheries and the recreational fisheries, but in the um, allocation, if you will, of the you know sharing of the fish, you know the tribal fisheries are number one on the list to make sure that they have their tribal rights in place and are allocated the right amount of fish to conduct their seasons in their cultural ceremonies. 
And then, of course, there is the the big news on the Klamath of the dam removal. Can you comment on that and and how that uh, might proceed forward and what that means to the salmon fishery, the removal of those dams? So it's hard to say right now what the effects uh, will be. Obviously, we hope that it's going to be an improvement for the fish and in future years that it will provide more opportunity for uh, the fishermen. But I think that in itself is going to be uh, a longer process, a little bit further down the road uh, for those fish to establish themselves. But there is some work the council will have to do um, you know, just to make up for some of the data points that might be lost because you uh, don't have a dam or a hatchery on the on the Klamath uh, anymore. But I don't think there's anything logistically that's going to um, hurt us from, you know, trying to set the correct seasons and such. But um, I think as far as the salmon are concerned, um, they will you know, definitely take advantage of any new habitat they have. And um, it would, you know, be perhaps a generation or two of, of salmon before the fishermen actually start seeing those benefits. But I'm excited to see what happens. Well, Robin Elke from the Pacific Fishery Management Council, thanks for spending some time with us to, to get us up to speed on what you guys do and why it's so important. Thank you. I appreciate you talking to me today. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. When we come back, we'll continue our look at the struggles of salmon here on Blue Dot. And we're back, and thanks for listening. Our next guest is Brett Gallion, the project leader for the Coleman National Fish Hatchery Complex near Redding, California, on a tributary of the Sacramento River. He joins us to talk about the hatchery's role in trying to maintain Chinook salmon stocks in the Northern California River system. Brett Gallion, welcome to Blue Dot. Uh, thanks, Dave. Glad to be here. I'd like you to take us back to kind of school days and going to visit the hatchery and find out about salmon and that kind of cool stuff. Can you take us through the life cycle of a salmon you work with? Okay, well, we'll start off with the uh, fall Chinook salmon that return to Coleman National Fish Hatchery. Uh, each October and November, the adult salmon will return from migrating from the ocean. They'll swim 300 miles up. Uh, the Sacramento River and up Battle Creek, and they return to the hatchery. Uh, we then spawn them, which is removing the eggs from the female and fertilizing them with the sperm from the male, salmon. The eggs then develop throughout October, November, and December. They start hatching in late December and January when they're, uh, we call them kind of like a sack fry during that stage. Then when they're a little like one inch fish or a half an inch, we call them a fry. And then when they're fry, we put them outside into large concrete raceways at Coleman and we'll raise them for the next three to four months. They're then released in late March and early April after they've been tagged and marked so that when anglers catch them, they can determine that they're a hatchery fish. They're then 
released into Battle Creek where they swim about four miles, five miles downstream. And then they flow into the Sacramento River where they spend the next 280 miles migrating out to the ocean. They'll then spend the next anywhere from two to four years in the ocean, uh, swimming around off Northern California, Southern Oregon, maybe even Northern Oregon, kind of off the Columbia before they come back as adult salmon in, again, two to four years, come back in September, October, November, back to Coleman National Fish Hatchery, and the process is started again. And then, of course, when the salmon come back, that's the end of their life cycle. Yes. So uh, salmon only uh, spawn once. So they're they're a very unique species because they're able to live in freshwater to start their life, migrate out to ocean, and live in a saltwater environment, and then they're able to migrate back and uh, spawn where that they uh, were originally from. Yeah, and I believe the term for that is they're an anadromous fish like steelhead. Yes, anadromous is the correct term. However, steelhead can do it more than once. They can do that uh, migration and spawn more than one time, but it's still stressful on them. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the history of the the fish hatchery complex there because it's quite impressive and and it's been there for quite a while. Um, But why was it necessary to have this hatchery? Because, you know, for thousands of years, these fish have been coming and spawning naturally and without without needing a fish hatchery, but now they do. And could you explain why historically, why why you're there? Yeah, uh, Coleman National Fish Hatchery was constructed in 1942, which was also when Shasta Dam was built. And so the hatchery, was created to partially mitigate for the loss of 187 miles of river habitat by the creation of Shasta Dam. And so the river habitat that was lost is in the Upper Sac, the Pitt River, and the McLeod. Currently, we raise 12 million fall Chinook salmon, 1 million late fall Chinook salmon, uh, 600,000 steelhead, which are anadromous rainbow trout, and then Anywhere from about 200 to about 800,000 winter Chinook salmon are raised in the the hatchery there. And 25 years ago, uh, a new hatchery was uh, created at the base of Shasta Dam. It's called Livingston Stone National Fish Hatchery. And it's a conservation hatchery where we raise winter Chinook salmon and Delta smelt. And so it's kind of a unique complex because we have two hatcheries we're called a complex so we have a large mitigation hatchery coleman and then we have on the other end a conservation hatchery which is livingston stone which is trying to propagate the endangered winter chinook salmon yeah and you've also had some interesting uh innovative programs lately things that you've tried to do uh such as introducing salmon back into you know the the young salmon back into the mcleod river could you just briefly tell us about that experiment and how it's going yeah absolutely that was something that came around in the uh, summer of 2022 it's kind of a cooperative agreement and a project with the winneman went to uh noaa and california department of fish and wildlife And so those are kind of the lead agencies on that project. And so the Livingston Stone National Fish Hatchery provided 40,000 winter Chinook eggs. Uh, There were two transfers of 20,000 eggs, and they transferred them up to the McLeod River, and then they reared them 
off-site and kind of a, a, a new project to then see how they would adapt to the McLeod and how they would migrate out in the McLeod. So we, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and Livingston's own National Fish Hatchery played more kind of a support role in their project. And then where would they migrate to? They were collected. They, they had some uh, rotary screw traps, which are devices you place out in the river, and they were collected. And then they then uh, drove them around Shasta Dam and released them, I believe, at Caldwell Park, which is in Redding, California. And then is that with the idea that they'll then go to the ocean and come back and, and what, be collected to spawn it in, in McLeod? Or what would, what would be the, the end game here if, if it all worked out? Again, the Fish and Wildlife Service played a support role in this project. And so some of those details are still being worked out. But yes, eventually it would be somehow to either collect them. The furthest currently that salmon can swim up the Sacramento River is to the Keswick Dam. And that's just uh, north of Redding, California. And so uh, there's a trap there that we operate to collect broodstock. So I would envision in the future there would be fish collected there, and then I don't know what the the main agencies will want to do if they'll want to transport adults or if they'll want to continue eggs. I don't know the specific details of how that project will unfold. Well, it's still like I said, it's an experimental project, still in its early phases, but it's interesting. Yes, yes, it, it's uh, trying to get species into their original habitats and also areas that can provide cold water. Yeah, and there's none better place for that than the McLeod River. Agreed. And some of the things that you've had to do the last few years because of the drought, um, the water flows were low and salmon, of course, they don't just need fresh water, they need cold fresh water. And then that was a problem. You, You had to actually truck salmon down to the to what the delta or the bay it's at one point and I don't I remember that happening yes uh back in 2014 and 15 during that drought period Coleman National Fish Hatchery we we raised 12 million fall chinook each year and so one year we transported 8 million three quarters of the population and then in 2015 conditions were so poor that we trucked all 12 million so just so we're following the two-year period, about 20 million of the 24 total million were trucked. What what happened was then in two to three years later, when the adult salmon returned, we had very poor returns back to Coleman National Fish Hatchery. We worked with the California Department of Fish and Wildlife, and by sampling the salmon adults, we were able to determine that a number of our fish returning to the American. And so when salmon don't return to where the hatchery where they were originally born, we call that strain. And so we try to minimize strain. You try to, you want the hatchery salmon to return back to the hatchery where they are. At Livingston Stone National Fish Hatchery, uh, some of the things that they've done because of the more recent droughts, we've had to, in order to maintain the water temperature at 56 degrees or below, the uh, U.S. Bureau of Reclamation has brought in these massive semi-tractor trailer chillers and generators, and the whole hatchery is operated for half a year 
on these chiller systems and generators to maintain the water temperature of 56 so we uh, can maximize the growth and the survival of the winter Chinook salmon. That's really interesting, and it kind of makes me think this is, in a way, this is really good that, you know, your practices are evolving with, you know, what you're observing, you know, and the science behind the data you're collecting. Yes. One thing that I should mention is that I've talked about the Fall Chinook program, and so it's a 12 million program, and 25% of the fish, when they're on station being reared at Coleman National Fish Hatchery, they're they're marked and they're tagged. And so what that means is we remove the adipose fin from the back, we cut it off, and then we stick a little metal tag in their nose. And so that way, when the adult salmon come back, you can tell from the outside or just seeing it or when the adult salmon's in a net or you catch it, you can see that it's a hatchery fish. And so then by recovering the nose, it has a distinct number that then can be part of a study or we can even track it all the way back down to which raceway it was raised at Coleman and then you can figure out the releases and so it does take time because of the multiple years of salmon's life cycle being out in the ocean two to four and then you kind of have to do it multiple years in a row so we we are quick to kind of adjust and have these studies it just takes anywhere from four to eight years to work, to work on the, getting the complete data set back. Sure. Cause it takes that, you know, you've got to go through that whole life cycle as we discussed at the top of the, of yeah. the interview that you've got to go through the life cycle of that salmon. That totally makes sense. Um, yeah. Well, we've had uh, an interesting winter. I'll put it that way with uh, a series of atmospheric river storms, a very, very healthy snowpack. Uh, and uh, so does that making you feel more hopeful for this year, the operations there at, at Coleman, uh, the complex, you know, for the salmon with, you know, hopefully being more and better quality water? I am. I'm, I'm optimistic. However, I'm a hatchery manager, so I always have to worry about things that are outside my control. And uh, I have a lot more fish to release this year um, coming up. So I'd really like... Um, if we could get some more storms in late March and early April, we try to coordinate our fish releases on storm events because mm -hmm. like the high water, the high water, it doesn't kind of funnel all the fish into one quarter. Now they're spread out. It's a little bit more difficult for the predators. Uh, we like the stained water so then the birds don't dive on them and stuff like that. And then the fish are able to hide. And then also the more water in the river system, the faster it's flowing, then the outgoing salmon migrate faster out the river. So uh, those are all kind of things that we try to dial in. Some years it works out. Other years, we, we have to release the fish because we have other salmon, other steelhead that are coming out, and we have to clear the raceways. And so sometimes we have to make decisions that um, are not coincided with storm events. Well, uh, Brett, uh, Gallien, the manager for the Coleman National Fish, Fish Hatchery Complex. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, Dave. 
Let's take a short break, but stay with us as we continue our examination of the state of the Chinook salmon fishery in Northern California. I'm Dave Schloem, and you are listening to Blue Dot. Welcome back to Blue Dot as we take a look inside the state of the Chinook salmon fishery in Northern California. Our next guest is Jason Thatcher. Jason has been a licensed fishing guide for over 20 years and has guided from Bristol Bay in Alaska to the Trinity, American Feather, and Sacramento Rivers in Northern California. He's intimately familiar with the Sacramento River fishery in general and the king or Chinook salmon there in particular. He joined us recently from his home on the river near Red Bluff, California. Jason Thatcher, welcome to Blue Dot. Thanks for having me. And uh, full disclosure, we're, we're neighbors. If, if I was a hawk, I could be at your house in a minute and 30 seconds. But Yeah, line of sight, it's pretty close, but river miles, it's, it's actually a, quite a few. Yeah, it's quite. It would, to drive to your house would take a lot longer. But anyway, right. we live near each other. Um, let, let me start out by asking, how long have you been uh, a guide doing the Sacramento River? I first got my guide license in 2002 when I was uh, 20 years old. And how did you get into that? What what caused you to want to do that? It, it wasn't necessarily a, a conscious decision to begin with. Um, my friends and I in high school and junior high um, spent a lot of time on the river. And once I got my driver's license, I got access to a drift boat about the same time. And my buddies and I would be out on the river and catching salmon, catching steelhead and coming back to the boat ramp and people would be seeing us cleaning fish or see us catching them while we're on the river. And they would, they would approach us and say, Hey, what do you think about a hundred bucks to take my son and I fishing next weekend? Uh And that beat the heck out of $6 an hour at the car wash. So (laughs) Didn't, didn't realize I needed to have a license or there was any regulatory issues with uh, you know, being a, a weekend high school fishing guide, and it kind of morphed from there. And, and of course, there are regulations. Tell, tell us you know, briefly, what do, you, what do you have to do to be a licensed fishing guide? It's actually not that complicated in California. Um, in California, if you pay the state and have a, um, have a bond, a surety bond, you're a fishing guide. But if you are going to run power boats in navigable waterways, now you're under the jurisdiction of the Coast Guard. And the Coast Guard requires you to have a six-pack captain's license or higher. And that, that requires background check, um, being enrolled in random drug testing. You have to go to courses, um, go through a whole certification process. Yeah, well, when people need to be safe and... and uh... Being in a powerboat on the Sacramento River with, you know, people in your boat, you, you know, you, you want to have a good captain at the helm. Right. Experience matters. And, okay, let's talk about salmon fishing in particular. Can you just kind of briefly describe for people who don't really know, who are listening to this program, what is the Chinook or King salmon, salmon fishery like on the Sacramento River where you guide? Well, on the Sacramento River, we have four different runs of king salmon. They're also um, commonly referred to as Chinook salmon. 
that's more Oregon, Washington, um, north terminology. King salmon, we have spring run, fall run, late fall run, and winter run. The winter run are ESA listed endangered fish. Spring run are threatened. And the the fall run and the late fall run, in my opinion, are an, just a, a shell of what what they used to be. And they're moving towards possibly being listed too if things continue the way they are. Well, tell us a bit about that. What what was the salmon fishery like when you started out when you were a kid fishing the Sacramento River? Compare that to now. When I first started fishing for salmon in the early to mid 90s, um, it was an amazing time to be a, a salmon angler. Uh, every river in the valley had flourishing runs. Those separate distinct runs were were healthy. Um, they were in very good fishable numbers. The fall run just dominated. I was, when I first started really fishing hard for them, um, 2000, 2001, 2002, in, in that time frame before I, I really um, got into the guide business, it was common to you know, go in from uh, May all the way into January it was very common to be able to go fishing and consistently encounter salmon. And what's it like now? It's a shell of what it was. Um, we don't get to fish in May and June anymore. Those spring run fish um, have collapsed. Um, there's not enough to, to be able to fish on those stocks. Um, the fall run, um, it opens July 16th and runs until um up here in red bluff it goes until the, the last day in december but just because it's open doesn't mean it's good um, yeah. the peak of the run is typically going to be the middle of september until the middle of october the last few years that early we call it the early season um that july august time frame it hasn't even really been worth going um we used to encounter 10 plus fish um you know opportunities at fish in a day and during that that window of time now you'd be you'd be fortunate to encounter two or three and a lot of days you're not going to encounter any wow it's, it's not really worth fishing for them until you get into that absolute peak peak part of the run from your point of view, from what you know of all these years being on the river and seeing all this happen, what are the main reasons why this fishery has collapsed? A water export um, would be number one. Um, I would say hatchery management would be number two. You know, we, we greatly depend on hatcheries to mitigate for the loss of habitat above um, all these main rivers that have been dammed. Sacramento has a dam. Feather has a dam. American has a dam. So that that pretty much took away the traditional spawning grounds uh, for the pretty much all all four runs of salmon. And um, what specifically, in terms of um, management, from that point of view, if you could be king of the king salmon, what would you do differently? Uh, I think number one, um, with the hatchery programs, um, we really saw a dip in 
the numbers of returning adults when they went from the fry to a smolt release. So the, the whole idea was to be able to code wire tag the smolt. They have to be a certain size to be able to put the, um, the wire tag implant into them. So in order to conduct their um, code wire tag studies, those fish have to be raised to a certain size. Those bigger size fish means reduced capacity in the hatchery, means more expense if you're going to raise more fish. So instead of raising 40 million fry and uh, getting those back into the river, now they raise, I think they take 20 million eggs with a goal of 12 or 13 million smolt. And the smolt are easier targets for prey fish. Um, they often get released in less than um, ideal conditions. They need to get raised longer. So they don't they don't get released into the river, say, until the striped bass run is right in the middle of uh, full swing, where you have you know maybe a million striped bass in the lower reaches of the river. Um, they get preyed upon very, very heavily by striped bass. Wow. And then uh, what about uh, as far as like the commercial fishing that happens uh, out in the ocean? Commercial fishery has definitely had an impact on um, the adults returning inland. With the commercial fishery, they have seasons set. They have a, a certain window of time to fish. That opening might be five days. When they have an opener, they're not regulated with a quota, or they haven't been anyways. So they're able to harvest during their window of time as many as they can possibly catch, that's what they can harvest. Um, the past two years, they have been very, very successful, which has in turn reduced the number of fish that have been able to return inland. The main governing body with the season setting and um, with the estimates for ocean abundance, for salmon abundance is PFMC, the Pacific Fisheries Management Council, when they do season setting, they look at all this different data and they determine, well, the, the commercial fleet will take X number of fish based on the, the ocean abundance and the sport ocean fleet will take X number of fish based on that abundance. And there should be, you know, X number of fish taken by recreational inland anglers and then everything left over is the escapement, the actual number of fish that make it back into the river to potentially spawn. So from your point of view, then, uh, all of these factors have, you know, drastically reduced the salmon runs in the Sacramento River. What, what has that done to, the, to the, your fellow guides? Do you, are you noticing a trend of them just kind of like, okay, well, we got to go somewhere else, do something else? You know, there's a number of lifetime fishing guides that have made a full-time career out of taking people fishing that have up and left California, given up. They can't make a living anymore. This keep this keeps chipping away. It gets a little bit worse and a little bit worse and a little bit worse. And you try to a lot of these a lot of these guides have tried to shift their effort to different fisheries. And it's just it's not sustainable. This this inland this inland fishery, if I understand the numbers correctly, was um, 
during the, the early 2000s, late 90s, it had an economic impact of about $90 million. Just the inland sport fishery. And that was dollars in those days. Right, exactly. So, you know, with the inflated value, you could you can imagine what yeah. it should be today. You know, that's accumulation of um, of impact to the uh, to local communities, people buying gas, lodging, food, guides, tackle, bait. There's a there's a whole list of things that people spend money on when there's a thriving fishery. And you ask anybody that's been in the industry, you know, for more than a couple of years, and they'll tell you that it's gotten nothing but worse. Well, of course, you, there, you and a lot of your fellow guides still do uh, guide on the Sacramento River for for the king salmon fishing. Um, tell us, for, from your point of view, watching people catch a big salmon like that, what, what is what is the thrill of that like? Why why is it such a special experience for people? You know, you've caught them yourself, All right? I've I've caught, gosh, I <laughs> probably I've probably seen thousands of salmon hit the deck or come up on the beach and it's a thrilling experience each and every one if i caught one today i would say it was pretty thrilling experience they one of the special things about a king salmon is they just try to out muscle you they try to outpower you they fight hard and that that strike the fight there's not much else like it yeah it's exciting and like for the People that do come up and, and fish the, the salmon fishery in the Sacramento River here in Northern California, um, what, what kind of people like to do that? Tell us about like the spectrum of clientele you have. I have hosted people from just about every walk of life, from across the country, from across the world. <laughs> I've had you know people from, uh, from Europe come over and uh, want to try their hand at salmon fishing. Um, everybody from... You know, the, the working blue collar guy to a gas station attendant to a CEO and everybody in between. Yeah, even radio hosts. Every Everybody in, everybody wants to catch a salmon and it's a great, it's great table fare. Oh, to yeah. delicious. <laughs> We've had uh, years of drought here and then this year, all of this rain and snow that has impacted California. Does that make you a more hopeful that uh, the the conditions of the river and for the fish will be better this year? It's definitely beneficial. The the fish that have been released so far have had far better conditions to try to make that migration out to the ocean. And I got to give credit to the Coleman hatchery here. They've been very willing to accept feedback from anglers and suggestions and they're actually on on the suggestion of fishermen they are um doing an experimental fry program though i'm not sure how many years ago um off the top of my head it was that they went from a full 100 percent fry program to a smolt program but they're reassessing the value of fry releases now and they are in the process of putting in, I, I think it's 2.7 million fry in the Balls Ferry area, you know, just above Battle Creek. And they're going to track and see what kind of um, returns they get from fry compared to the smolt. 
Yeah, and does that make you a little more hopeful then for the future that, you know, that at least you do see some of these innovations happening? It's very, very encouraging. <laughs> it gets tiresome being told no, you know, by the state and the fisheries managers and, you know, they're they're stuck in doing things a certain way. And, you know, to see feedback um, be accepted and action being taken it is definitely encouraging. Jason, is there anything uh, I did I should have asked you that I didn't? Yeah, one of the, one of the things we didn't touch on is the uh, um, the dewatering. You know, they deliver water during a certain time frame when there's demand, um, the highest demand. They have to transport water downriver. Once that delivery is done, then they shut off the faucet. So that shutting off of the faucet is a very untimely occurrence for salmon that have moved into shallow water, shallow fast water to spawn. There's been a number of years now where basically entire natural spawning populations of salmon, you know, have begun spawning, digging their reds and laying the eggs and reclamation drops the water, leaves them high and dry, and those eggs are seagull food. Wow. It happens over and over again and nothing's ever nothing's ever changed. They they have taken steps to stair step the flows down instead of doing one massive drop overnight. They'll they'll stair step the flows so those fish, the adult fish, do have the opportunity to to move off the reds and into the into the um, deeper water. But those eggs are their toast no matter what okay last quick question make this brief but is it worth it to go with somebody like you this year and, and give your give it a shot to go catch a king salmon on the sacramento river you know every year is different um, as long as we have as long as we have a fishery that's open you have the opportunity to catch a king salmon is it going to be like 2002 there's not not a chance it's going to be mega runs like that but if you, if you time it right, the opportunity is there. Well, Jason Thatcher, thanks for talking to us and sharing your, your wealth of knowledge about the salmon fishery of the Sacramento River. My pleasure. Thanks again to our guests, Robin Elke from the Pacific Fisheries Management Council, Brett Gallion from the Coleman National Fish Hatchery Complex, and fishing guide Jason Thatcher. And one final note on him. Not only is Jason an outstanding fishing guide, according to friends of mine who have been on the river with him, he also gives back to his community by taking first responders who have experienced trauma out on the river to fly fish. It's aimed at giving them a healing, peaceful experience, and I admire that greatly. As Henry Winkler once put it, fly fishing is a washing machine for the mind. I couldn't agree more. Blue Dot is a production of North State Public Radio, a service of Cap Radio in beautiful and talented Northern California. If you missed or want to revisit an episode of Blue Dot, you can do just that on our website, mynspr.org. And while you're at it, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode on our website, the NPR One app, or wherever you get your podcast groove on. Follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Blue Dot NSPR. The theme music is by Matt Schultz. Blue Dot is engineered and produced by the maestro Matt Fiddler. I'm Dave Schlom, and for all of us here, I remind you there that from deep space, we all live on a pale blue dot. Mm-hmm.